Before we get started today, I wanted to let you know about the Crossway podcast. Each week, we sit down with authors like Paul Tripp, John Piper, and Rosaria Butterfield and discuss the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. Subscribe today wherever you listen to podcasts or check out the link in the show notes. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the Women of the Word podcast. I'm Lauren Susanto here with my friend, Jen Wilkin. Jen, good to see you again. Good to see you. So today, Jen, we're going to talk about the second stage of the Bible study process, which is interpretation. Out of all of the three stages of the process, I feel like this is probably the one I have the most questions about or the one that makes me the most uncertain. Yeah, it probably should. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, that's that's good to hear. (laughs) So let's start at maybe the foundational level, like we did last week with comprehension. Just can you tell us what this stage entails What does it mean? How is it different from comprehension? So comprehension is asking the question, what does it say? So it's dealing a lot with just getting in your head. What's the, what are the facts around this passage? What is the basic structure of the passage? Um, And then interpretation is going to move us to the question, what does it mean? And so that is why it's intimidating because as soon as we get to a conversation of what scripture means, we can all feel uh, the weight of that, or at least I hope that we would feel the weight of that. And a lot of us have, um, have been, um, trained into a way of thinking about the scriptures that asks, what does it mean to me? And so moving into an understanding of interpretation that is just, what does it mean is a big shift for some people and one that they may not even be aware that they need to make. So what is what does that exactly look like in practice? How do we make sure we're not doing a me-centered interpretation and what's the alternative? Okay, so when you think about interpretation with regard to the Bible or really with regard to any book, uh, I wanna revisit those two questions I just said a second ago, right? So what does it mean to me is assuming that it's my job as a reader to assign a meaning to a passage. Uh, What does it mean is fundamentally different. That Mm -hmm. assumes that meaning is determined by the author and is discovered by the reader. That's very different. That means that I am not just saying, oh, I think this hits me this way. It means that I am asking, what did the person who wrote this want me to take from it? So, you know, I've written four books at this point Mm -hmm. through Crossway, and uh, I never sat down to write one of those manuscripts thinking, I'm just gonna put some words on a page and they can make whatever (laughs) they want of it, right? Yeah, right. Uh, And the Lord doesn't do that either. Mm -hmm. And so we should assume that there is an objective meaning to what we are looking at and that we need to dig for it. So I think it's significant that the Bible talks a lot about digging for wisdom. Like it talks about that action of digging, uh, digging for buried treasure, that kind of an idea in some of the parables too. And I think we have a very real task to do that when it comes to interpretation. And digging implies that we would be using good tools. So that makes sense that the, the, what the author, original author of the Bible had to say had a meaning and that's what we're searching for in the interpretation mm-hmm. stage, not what does this necessarily mean mm-hmm. for me? And that's a hard thing to do. I think it's natural for people to want to think, well, what does this mean for me today? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when we do that, you've already referenced this, having sort of a me-centered approach to mm-hmm. the scriptures, we've already introduced the idea of the Bible is a book about God foundationally, right? Right. And so um, when we move into the interpretation stage, we're going to want to be asking, well, how does what I'm seeing about God here impact the way that I understand what is playing out in a particular passage? And um, you know, one of the one of the classic spaces where I've seen people forget that and make a passage about them or about what they want it to mean to them 
would be Psalm 139, 14, especially mm-hmm. in, in women's circles. We talk about being fearfully and wonderfully made a lot. Yes. And um, the problem there is, uh, is an interpretive one. It's not that mm-hmm. we are not fearfully and wonderfully made, but it's, it's an emphasis issue. Um, it's that when you read all of Psalm 139, you realize that it's actually a Psalm about God, fearful and wonderful. And one aspect of that is that I, his created being, am fearfully and wonderfully made, but that the psalm is actually uh, profoundly disinterested in me and extremely interested in talking about God. So that's maybe one example of how interpretation can go a little bit sideways. We can get it a little bit wrong. Is there another example that you can share that's similar? Yeah, so the Psalm 139 example is a, is a, an example of where we forget the textual context. Mm. So all we would have to do to correct that interpretive issue is read the Psalm from start to finish. Yeah. <laughs> so you can see how the comprehension piece would have contributed to our understanding of that one verse if we took the Psalm as a whole and followed the flow of what was being said. It removes that uh, opportunity, so to speak, sure. of, of making the psalm primarily about something that it's not. Um, but another example, um, so that's an example of a context issue, but uh, another example that comes up a lot is related to questions of genre. So we touched on this a little bit last time that yeah. genre is going to matter a whole lot for comprehension. It's going to matter a whole lot for interpretation as well. Um, so I have had multiple times where a Christian parent has said to me, I'm just praying for my child who's far from the Lord, but I'm claiming that promise that if you train up a child in the way that he should go, when he is old, he will not turn from it. Mm. And, uh, but I don't know, the Lord's taking a long time and you know, that kind of a thing. Yeah, and yeah. I feel so much empathy for a person, sympathy for a person who is facing that with a child. But I also feel a lot of frustration that someone told that person that that was a promise to claim mm. because that is a proverb and a proverb is not a promise, it's a principle. Mm. It's telling something that's generally true. And so it means that basically, if we train up our children in the fear of the Lord, more than likely they're going to stick with that, right? And right. you wouldn't not want to do that and assume that they would come to believing uh, faith. And so it's a general principle that parents should be thinking about. But think about the damage that happens when someone is claiming it as a promise. Because then if a child doesn't return to the faith, then you have a believer, a well-intended believer who is questioning the goodness and, and faithfulness of God because they don't understand a genre rule, Yeah. right? right. Uh, and so when we think about issues of interpretation, um, we need to be looking at all of those layers of context that we talked about when we talked about asking those five basic questions at the beginning of reading a book of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, who wrote it? That's going to matter because that's the person who's placing meaning there for us to discover through the inspiration of the Spirit. To whom was it written? It's going to matter who the original audience was. We don't get to interpret it just for me and for now. We need to think about what it meant for them and for then. Um, when was it written? That's going to help us think hard about what was life like at the time that this book was written. Uh, and then what are the major themes? The major themes would be something we would begin to see emerging in our comprehension work where we're marking repeated words and phrases, beginning to see what the patterns are in the book as a whole. Um, and then that 
in what style is the book written. That matters a lot. The style is going to have an impact on how we understand the words that were chosen to communicate the ideas that are placed there for us. And hearing you say that, that sounds like such a simple process, being mm -hmm. aware of genre, which seems like such a foundational level of the comprehension states, can really help protect us mm -hmm. from some dangerous or damaging interpretations that could impact how we think about scripture and what what the Bible says for us. But it's also why the interpretation piece does feel so daunting for yes. us because you probably don't have a PhD in literature, right? right? right. I don't. Uh, you probably aren't an ancient Near Eastern scholar who can tell everything that there is to know about the Holy Land or a particular place in a particular era. Mm -hmm. um, you probably aren't someone who has original language um, skills. And yeah. so it can just be like, why are we even trying to do this on our own, right? Yeah, like, why don't really I just daunting. defer to the person who is more qualified than me to do the interpretive work? Right. Yeah. So, and you know, my answer is probably going to be predictable to everyone who's been following the podcast. Um, it's because you should absolutely avail yourselves of those gifts. Those are, those are gifts. It's a gift to us that people have a gift of teaching and scholarship and that they're able to spend, some people devote their entire lives to one small yeah. aspect of interpretation. Um, but again, we don't want to do that until we have taken a stab at this ourselves. And we don't like to take a stab at it because we're like, what if I get it wrong, right? Right. So what should we do with that feeling? Is Am I not right to feel that way? Well, you are right to feel that way, but you're not right to stay feeling that mm -hmm. way. And so, you know, going back to an illustration I used previously, um, it's, it's like when you're learning to play a musical instrument, right? Yeah. Um, you shouldn't feel absolutely confident to sit down and play something by sight the first time, unless you're a very skilled person who has done a lot of sight reading and is really trained in the instrument. And so uh, the, the big roadblock for, for, I think for women in particular in, in the interpretation stage is um, you know that you're basically taking a crack at something. You're, you're gonna say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try my best. But we have this overdeveloped sense of needing to get the right answer the first time. And um, the learning process means that you're going to make mistakes. But when you have taken, given your best attempt at interpretation before you go to the person who's thought about it for years and years, who is proficient, then you will be able to identify with a lot more clarity and with a lot more stickiness from a learning outcome standpoint, whether someone's interpretation fits with the way that the passage flows. Um, because you know, when you get to those commentaries, they're not all gonna agree with one another. Right. So you'll have to discern between what the experts said at some point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've been a Christian long enough, I would imagine you have too, to have rethought some of my interpretations on things. I can look back on things that I, interpretations that I ran toward in my mm -hmm. early years uh, that now I would say, oh, I know more. I've spent more time in the scriptures and I would qualify that. I would say that differently than I did. Can you give us an example of what that could look like that might help people understand a little bit more of how we can change or, or come to a better conclusion of what an interpretation for a specific passage might mean? Yeah, I'll just embarrass myself right here in front of all of you. Um, but I think this is actually uh, a passage that I've actually heard it interpreted in some creative ways too. So I feel a little less bad that, <laughs> that minus, yeah, that I'm the <laughs> cheapest of sinners. But um, when I was in college, I was uh, put in charge of teaching this 
Bible study and no one should have let me teach anything probably at that stage. But I remember distinctly one week I taught on the parable of the sower. So the four different types of soil. Yeah. And um, I, I read the parable to the girls who were in the room. And then I was like, and, um, and here's, here's, here's what this means. Like our hearts are like these four different types of soil. And so like you have a rocky part in your heart and you have a, uh, a hard part in your heart and you have a part in your heart that's just grown around with all of the worries of uh, the thorns of life. And, um, and then you have parts of your life that of your heart that are fertile soil. And that's where, you know, you're really seeing a lot of progress um, in your sanctification. And I'm like, peace be with you and send them all home. Right. <laughs> um, and, and it did not occur to me to just turn to the next page where Jesus literally interprets the parable and he does not say what I said. Uh, you know, he talks about the four different types of soil as four different types of listeners who, who hear the gospel and respond to varying degrees, but only one kind of soil actually produces fruit. And so it's actually not saying what I said. It's talking about the difference between an unbeliever who gives an appearance of receiving the word and then the believer who's the fertile soil who actually sees the fruit born in their life. So I remember several years later realizing, oh, it was right there. Like all I had to do was turn the page. And that, that's the best kind of commentary mm -hmm. is when the Bible itself is illuminating what it says. Yeah. That's an extremely obvious example of that. Sure. But that's generally true when you're paying attention to the textual context of a passage that you get you get immediate help just by paying attention to what's right around it. That's a great way, a great reminder of why context is so important, why you know, some of those methods that we talked about earlier where we pitfall into, oh, I'm just going to cherry pick this, mm -hmm. this specific passage and understanding what's all around it can really help our interpretation of a specific passage. I also think that story is encouraging in a lot of other ways too. One being sometimes I think when, oh, I have to interpret it and then that's my answer. I like can't change my mind. Right. And so being willing to know that like I can interpret something this way, but then as I continue learning and studying the Bible, spending time with it, being patient to learn mm -hmm. that the Lord can can give me clarity on what something means on interpretation. Mm -hmm. I can come to a better understanding of that. I don't have to think my first interpretation is the only thing. Well, and there are layers to interpretation, right? You could argue that what I taught to that group of girls, it didn't produce heretics, right? Like right. they didn't they didn't leave that room. And, and now I hate that some of them probably still remember that teaching and are mm. like, and that just changed the way I thought <laughs> about my heart. Uh, but that's, you know, it's at best a third level sure. uh, interpretation or application of, of that particular passage because Jesus gave us the first level interpretation. Yeah, you yeah. don't really want to like contradict that. No. <laughs> Uh, but um, but again, it wasn't dealing with a particularly critical aspect of Christian belief. Um, and so when we think about, oh, there are different layers of interpretation and not everybody's going to arrive at the same place, that's true. But, but it is also true that there are things that we all agree on. And those are, you know, we mentioned this in our previous episode, the main things that are the plain things, and yeah. that would be just basic Christian doctrine. But um, because we live in such a divisive time, we think if someone disagrees with me on something, I just need to, you know, 
they're reading the Bible wrong. Yeah. Um, and that's only true of those those issues that we hold in the closed fist of orthodoxy. It's things like um, the dual nature of Christ or um, the doctrine of sin or atonement, those kinds of things. And, um, and so when you're getting into a discussion about the different meanings of, of a particular passage, it doesn't always impact those big ideas, those main things, um, as much as another passage might. And I'm sure we're going to all come across times when we have a, a different interpretation than somebody else. Mm -hmm. What What are some other things to keep in mind? I know you said that like there's some specific issues of orthodoxy, of doctrine mm -hmm. that matter a lot that we agree on. Mm -hmm. Those things, those are, those are foundational interpretive conclusions yes. that we come to. Yes. But what do we do with their other things? What are some examples of some things that maybe are okay, I mm -hmm. guess, to disagree on? And mm -hmm. what's a good posture for to take for us to take when we interact with people who have different interpretations than we do? Yeah, so the way that this is generally discussed is in terms of three levels, and that's a it's an oversimplification, but sure. for the purpose of entertaining the idea, maybe for the first time for some of our listeners. Yeah. Um, and it's a concept we often refer to as theological triage. In other words, it's knowing whether uh, a disagreement over an issue is a heart attack or <laughs> is a, uh, a hangnail. Okay, and so you're trying to determine what level of importance we assign to the disagreement. And so the three levels that I've used most typically to teach this would be you have essentials. So those are the things that define orthodoxy. Uh, and then you have convictions. Those are things that we should care a lot about and that we probably are going to fight about, but in a in, you know, hopefully in a way that is honoring of each other's yes. positions. So essentials, convictions, and then preferences. Preferences are things that we care about, but they're not worth dividing over. Over, you wouldn't split into a different denomination over a preference. So essentials are those closed-fisted ideas that you find in the creeds. They're on your church's website when it talks about their basic beliefs. Convictions would be things like how people feel about baptism or how people think about the end times or how people think about um, what men or women can't do within the church. They matter, they're really important discussions, but they don't determine whether someone is or isn't a Christian. And then a preference would be something like worship style or um, you know, should we use hymns or should we only sing psalms or can we use praise choruses? They're things that you might really have a strong opinion on, but you recognize that your strong opinion is not, uh, uh, it's not critical. I think we've kind of come to the conclusion that there can be different ways to interpret different passages mm -hmm. of scripture. Some of them are more important mm -hmm. of how we agree with them than others, but can there be more than one right interpretation for specific passages? Can people come to different conclusions and that be okay? Um, I would say yes and no. I mean, I think when we're in the new Jerusalem, we will have clarity that we do not have now, but I also think that passages can have layers of interpretation to them. And so, um, um, and I also do think that um, while it doesn't mean something just for me, like it wouldn't just be an interpretation that only Jen sees and draws yeah. something from, that depending on your circumstance, there may be an aspect of an interpretation that is more top of mind for one group of people than it is for another or for people who lived in one time period than who lived for another, which is why we need the church universal. It's why we need the historical witness of the church so that we can um, have the benefit of those perspectives. We are not all living identical lives and that's on purpose. And that's something that can be an asset um, to interpretation but again, not around those closed-fisted mm -hmm. 
uh, issues? I think probably for most people, the times that they're going to come across maybe some disagreements and in interpretation is probably in some type of mm -hmm. small group Bible study setting. Mm -hmm. And those times can be a little uncomfortable. If you're sitting around with a group of people, somebody says an interpretation and you might disagree with them or think, I don't know if that's correct. What, what are some maybe few guiding principles that you can give to people in small group settings or Bible studies or when they interact with other believers, mm -hmm. uh, how to disagree maybe well or how to correct somebody whose interpretation might not be accurate? We'll always lead with charitability, obviously, but um, sometimes if the group is generally defined as a group of peers, then maybe the best way to offer a corrective is to say, you know what, let's look into that this week and to go to a more authoritative source and then gather maybe uh, two or three different viewpoints that are from a from a more scholarly space. Um, and you can even show how those, those don't necessarily perfectly agree with each other, but there are aspects of them in which there is agreement. And that helps people see, oh, if these kinds of conversations can happen and have some level of agreement to cling to, then in our small group, we can also uh, look for that as well. It doesn't have to be one person in the small group who's like, no, that's not right. Uh, yeah. Although sometimes it may be if someone does have a particular level of understanding that the rest of the small group doesn't have. I think the important um, thing for us to be developing that in those settings is enough trust with each other that we feel that we're able to say, this is my interpretation as I read it right now. Um, it's like going to your piano lesson and saying, this is my version of this sonata right now, but I'm really still working on it. I'm not ready to perform it yet, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Uh, I do think for those who have some sort of a teaching platform, this, this interpretation piece is a, is a big deal. You don't want to get up there with something that's half-baked and you shouldn't. And that's why if there's something that I'm still working on when I'm teaching, I will acknowledge, hey, I don't think I'm done thinking about this yet. This is where I am with it now. And then I'll say, but here is what another person says who's thought about it a lot more than I have. Um, because I hope I'll, I hope that's modeling something, but I also hope it's, it's, it's being true to my own level of understanding and not projecting myself to have more understanding than I do. In reminding us that it is a process mm -hmm. and that we we want to be faithful to try to interpret scripture as we're reading it, to do that throughout our lives, but mm -hmm. that it's a process and that it's not like we're just going to read something once, give one interpretation, and That's then right. it's like, okay, I'm done now forever. But it is really important to recognize that the starting point for interpreting is to let scripture interpret scripture. And so you want to think about concentric circles, like going out from the passage that you're in. What do the verses around it say? What do the chapters around it say? What do you know? What has it fit in the storyline of Scripture? Um, and to let that be um, your guiding uh, principle before you go to the commentaries, yeah. because again. You know, a, a good way for people to recognize whether their own thinking has been engaged in the process of interpretation or not is when you are sitting and listening to someone teach with authority, um, do you ever disagree? Now, don't like raise your hand and shout out, I disagree in the middle of the sermon, uh, because you may discover on the back end that you were wrong to disagree, like that that was the, the good interpretation of a passage. But if you never have that, I don't know if that's the way that I read that passage or not, it means that you've probably blazed past comprehension. Yeah. 
Um, and you are probably not owning interpretation yourself to any degree. So um, it is important for us to have moments of disagreement, even with our most trusted teachers. Like I always like it when a woman in my own local study will come up to me and say, I don't think I agreed with how you taught that last week. And I'm like, all right, now we're off to the races. Yeah. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't tear me down as a person. And it's also really good for me to, to hear how that's hitting people because maybe it's a failure in my communication or maybe I didn't land on the interpretation that I should have. This is the stage at which we have to allow ourselves to feel how lost we are. Yeah. It just is. And it doesn't mean that we don't try to find our way home. Yeah. It just means that we recognize that it's going to feel that way. And that that's, that's actually what we should expect. And this is where, you know, you just get to that point of people being um, so discouraged in their reading of scripture and so infantilized in their reading of scripture, thinking that they need an expert to tell mm -hmm. them everything because at some point they didn't understand something and they assumed that the Holy Spirit did not illuminate truth for them uh, for some reason, either because they're bad at it or they're sinful or they don't have as strong of a connection. And the Spirit illuminates truth for us as we are faithful to the process. So maybe let's talk a little bit about being faithful to the process. How can we how can we seek to be faithful as possible in interpreting while acknowledging that we we all bring biases to the scripture when we read it? Again, I would say start by if you're hitting an interpretive problem and you're like, I really don't know what is yeah. going on here. It might mean that you need to go back to the comprehension phase and spend some more time there. Um, looking in, at different translations is a huge help. It's just a huge help. Um, thinking back through, did I pay enough attention to what came before this and what's coming immediately after it? Like you're probably missing a piece if it feels like a complete puzzle to you. Um, you probably have moved too quickly around the, the, the contextual pieces. There are some passages in the New Testament, in, no, I would say throughout the Bible, where sometimes there is a piece of historical information that is a big help. And to us, it feels like, well, how was I supposed to know that? But if you have even a baseline understanding of what a particular period in history was like, it, it's actually not like a secret decoder ring to the passage at all. It's something that to the original audience would have been obvious. This is one of the things I'm running into as I'm putting together a study on Revelation is um, that that book was read aloud to a group of listeners who heard it and understood it. And we don't. We think it's impossible to understand unless someone tells us. Uh, but the more time that I've spent in the Old Testament, the more I am hearing what that original audience would have heard because it's assuming that they have this whole memory bank back here in the Old Testament. And, um, and we don't, we don't have that. And so, so much of the, the missing puzzle piece that we're looking for could be something um, that's an obvious historical thing. Maybe another question that we can talk for the person that feels really intimidated mm -hmm. by this stage of the process. I think being willing or understanding that it's, you know, we just need to kind of try, be okay, kind of sitting in that discomfort, being okay with realizing my interpretive or my interpretation is not correct. Mm -hmm. I think there's still going to be the, the desire to want to see what other people have to say. Yeah, so how, at what point is it, I've done enough interpretive work on my own, mm -hmm. but now it's time for me to go and make sure I'm 
correct? Is that even the way to think about the process? Like I try, but then, okay, let me now make sure I'm right. I would say when you're gathering with a group to talk about it, you're trying to see if you're on the right track. And it depends on if that group has someone who is more of a subject matter expert, someone mm -hmm. who is doing the work in the commentaries to help yeah. keep everything on track. Um, there should be, I think, some teaching element to, to that gathering. There should be some deferring to the opinions and the interpretations of people who are more skilled at the work. But um, I would say, think of it again in terms of the musical instrument analogy. There's you practicing at home and getting so frustrated with yourself because you're still messing it up even though you've done it 10 times. And then when you go to that small group setting, it's like going to your lesson, your piano lesson. So it's not your recital, it's your piano <laughs> lesson. And then you have to let your teacher know, I've made some progress, but I'm still super embarrassed about it. <laughs> yeah. And that's okay. Your, your piano teacher is not expecting you to show up and give a concert-worthy performance. That's something that you're still working toward. And so I think when we think about it in terms of that, that time um, where you're interacting with other believers around what you've discovered, you are not performing you are practicing and you're doing a group practice effort and that's very different. That means you don't have to feel ashamed. You can say, I'm in progress on this. And one of the biggest ways that this can um, be helpful in a small group is if the time you've spent on your own has been spent using two tools in particular. One of those is summarizing. Uh, some, when we are able to summarize something, it shows that we are synthesizing what's happening over a broad sweep. Um, and we're trying to really get to like, if this person said this in one or two sentences, uh, it's the elevator pitch basically for a particular portion of scripture. It's a really helpful and hard exercise. It takes a lot of getting used to. So summarizing if you're dealing with a longer passage or paraphrasing if you're dealing with a shorter passage or a verse. It's writing things in your own words. I know from years of teaching Bible study, people hate to do that because it's like you get to your small group and you're like, here's my terrible paraphrase. And it's like going to your piano teacher and she has to hear whatever progress you yeah. were able to hack out during the week. But again, when everybody agrees on what the purpose of that conversation is, it should be a perfectly safe place for you to listen to someone else's paraphrase and say, I think you got closer to it than I did. Uh, or to read uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message and say, oh, that's the direction he took it. Um, and so again, we're looking for a little bit of shared light and then we want to sit under some really good teaching that helps us know if our shared light was in fact um, pointing us in the right direction. Yeah, we're not alone in this we're part not of the alone. process. No, it's... we don't wanna be alone. Yeah. So Jen, how would you say that the person and work of Jesus should influence how we interpret the Bible? That's a really good question. It's pointing us back to the idea we've already touched on of the big story of the Bible, because everybody would know that the redemption piece that the cross is that hinge point, and it helps us to understand how the rest of the pieces of the Bible all fit together. And so we do want to be asking, even particularly when we're in the Old Testament, how is this pointing toward that? Um, we want to talk about how does the law speak of Christ? How do the prophets speak of Christ? How do the New Testament epistles look back toward the, the finished work of the cross and, and give us understanding of its significance. Um, so those are all really important things for us to keep in mind. We can ask generally what's true about God and how does that impact my reading, but also specifically how am I thinking about um, Christ and how it is going to shape my understanding of a passage. 
But I do want to talk to what I think can be an oversimplification of that idea. I know that sometimes people will be told you should be looking for Jesus on every page of the scriptures. And that is speaking to this impulse that we just talked about, which is a good one. But we don't want to take that too woodenly and try to force things into a passage that a passage may not be doing. Because again, some books of the Bible are very long. They're taking their time drawing out an idea in a way that shorter books might not be. So we should have as a general principle, where am I seeing um, this passage pointing me toward Christ and his work of atonement? But we would not want to say, oh, I read a page of the Bible. Where can I see Jesus? And you know, it's not like, where's Waldo? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it is a good frame of reference to keep in mind always when you're thinking about interpretation. All of this has just been so helpful, so many good things to, to keep in mind. And I, I really think give people confidence that while interpretation can feel really daunting, overwhelming, even people could feel like, I just don't know if I can do this. I think you've shared some really helpful, practical ways that should give people confidence that this is something that we can do. Mm -hmm. Everyone can do this. We're all in this together. And, and we just have to kind of start getting into the Bible mm -hmm. using those tools that you've mentioned. Yeah, I would just say, if you're feeling discouraged around this, find yourself some good co-learners who are committed to fumbling their way along with you and be sure that you have access to some good teaching, some good commentary that you can go to once you have spent some time together doing this work. And I really think it doesn't take long for you to begin to sense the difference, not just in the way that you're working on interpretation yourself, but in the way that you're processing someone else's interpretation with a lot more critical thinking skills than maybe you had used previously. Oh, that's so good. Thanks so much, Jen. And thank you again for joining us for this episode of the Women of the Word podcast. Tune in next week where Jen and I will look at what it means to apply the Bible, which is the third and final step of the Bible study process. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and we'll see you all here again next week. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Before we go today, I wanted to mention a timely book by Jen Oshman called Cultural Counterfeits, Confronting Five Empty Promises of Our Age and How We Were Made for So Much More. This book will help women find freedom and joy as they explore God's good design and purpose for their lives. Grab a copy today by visiting the link in the show notes.